a really big thank you to uh, John and Martin for inviting me to uh, to do this, to be with you on this uh, this lovely morning in St Luke's. Now, one of the best bits for us recently down here in Somerset was discovering this uh, small secluded lake, just a short walk away from the cottage where we are. Uh, we love the sea, and um, Pat especially, but we've so far refrained from making trips down to the coast. So finding this uh, lovely, peaceful pool nearby is a real treat. There you go. It's almost as if it belongs to us, actually, because uh, we never see anybody there, apart from some coots and uh, a couple of pairs of mallards, a shy heron, and a flock of swallows who love skimming the surface and swooping down to grab a drink and uh, a dozen or so flies. <laughs> it's really a kind of drive-through, I think, for swallows, um, you know, fly burger and a Coke to go. Uh, and on one visit last week, uh, we were about to leave and a lone gull suddenly took off from the reeds in front of us and uh, I managed to take this picture. And I love this image. It's kind of flappy and broody and it made me think about the divine spirit hovering over the primordial deep in Genesis out of which creation emerged. And as the bird soared up and away, I, I just muttered a prayer that the heavenly gull would brood over the chaos of our world right now, that some new order would somehow emerge from all of this that's going on. It's interesting, isn't it, how ancient people looked for the divine in the sky and nature, in the sun, uh, the moon and the stars, uh, the rivers, the mountains and trees. And uh, th there are strong echoes of this in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. And then in the Gospels, the Holy Spirit is pictured as a dove. Early Celtic Christians preferred the image of a wild goose. So, hey, why not a beautiful gull flapping gracefully over a lake in Somerset? You don't need to be a pantheist to feel that you are closer to God in the beauty and wildness of nature. In fact, I think for most people, it's more appealing to envisage God as a presence in nature than to grapple with an abstract doctrine like the Holy Trinity, three persons yet one. I mean, what does that even mean? From a rational perspective, it really just sounds pretty absurd. But here's the thing. When Basil of Caesarea formulated the doctrine of the Trinity in the 4th century, he wasn't actually trying to give a rational, much less literal explanation of God. Quite the reverse. Um, the whole point was, in fact, to stop Christians thinking about God in rational terms. Um, if you did that, Basil reflected, you could only imagine God as a being, a being sort of out there, because that's all that human minds are capable of. But God has to be much more than a being, even the greatest being of all. For Basil, the Trinity was indeed mystery, but not a mystery that had to be believed, you know, like a factual proposition. Rather, it's something to be prayerfully contemplated, as in gazing at Meg's wonderful icon in St Luke's. Karen Armstrong, the historian, concludes that the Trinity is mythos, not logos, a myth in the true sense, that is, something that is magnificently true, even if entirely unrational. And like all myths, Armstrong says, 
It only makes sense when you translate it into practical action. All the great religious traditions acknowledge divinity to be a mystery beyond comprehension, and each has its own subtle methods for subverting factual interpretations of who or what God is. In Judaism, the name of God quite literally cannot be uttered, since it consists only of Hebrew vowels. If you try to speak the word, um, it rather wonderfully, I think, just makes the sound of breathing, of inhaling and exhaling. In Islam, it's forbidden to picture God with any image or likeness, human or otherwise. Hindus speak of 330 million gods, which I think is really a way of saying that the names and dimensions to God are completely inexhaustible. Buddhists don't use God language at all, but point to the far shore, a reality that cannot be understood, only experienced. Meanwhile, we in Christianity have this enigma of the Holy Trinity, a mystery that defies logical categories. The fact is, we cannot speak of God without using shed loads of poetic license. For as St Paul writes, we don't see things clearly now. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. God is not literally uh, a father with a son, or a dove, a wild goose, or a gull. God isn't really a king, or a shepherd, or a lord. These limping metaphors, as C.S. Lewis calls them, are the beautiful language of poetry, not fact. Even the name God is borrowed from paganism, you know, the pantheon of gods. Borrowed words, that's all we have to speak of God. Or as someone said, God is always verbally dressed in second-hand clothes that never fit very well. Even to say that God is love is not li a literal description. It's a way of saying that the closest we ever get to God, or what God means, in, is in the experience of love. St John writes, God is love, and those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. Whenever we experience the reality of love or true friendship in another human being, of any faith or none, we are touching the essence of what religions try to name as God. And if we wish to draw closer to God, we must pursue this path, the path of love. In other words, all true spiritual experience in any tradition is rooted in the practice of love. So listen, you can't go around tear-gassing innocent people, then wave a Bible around and imagine that God is on your side. It doesn't work like that, Mr. President. At its most basic level, love means treating people who are different to you with the respect, compassion and justice that you yourself wish to receive. And this leads to perhaps the most pertinent example of how we can translate the myth or mystery of the Holy Trinity into practical action. Because at the very core of the Trinity lies a radical expression of unity in diversity, harmony in difference. Right now, our world is in turmoil, not only because of the devastating effects of the pandemic, but also because fundamental injustices in the Western world about whose lives matter most are finally coming home to roost. And we all have to decide whether to stick with our default tribalisms out of fear or self-interest or start to live 
as one essential planetary family in which everyone is accorded the same dignity, the same opportunity and the same justice. We don't have the choice of remaining neutral. We need to choose. The uh, image that uh, is at the centre of the artwork on the chancel roof is the symbol of three hers in a circular dance of unity. At first glance, it appears that each animal has two ears, but actually they each share an ear. It was what attracted me to this image when we decided to use it, because it seems to say that the Trinity coheres around radical attentiveness, radical listening and empathy, that this is what creates and maintains any community. Never, dear friends, has there been a greater need in our world for a committed process of listening, listening to the oppressed especially, but also to the fears and dreads that sometimes cause others to become the oppressors. This is the basis of a truth and reconciliation process. The great Jewish philosopher Martin Buber said that all real living is meeting. In other words, to become fully alive is to become fully available, fully attentive and empathetic to that which is other than myself and to open myself to whatever change will then be required. And therein, I reckon, lies the challenge of the Trinity. Amen. We love you guys. Go well.